Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, welcome everybody to today's seminar. Today we're going to hear from Martia Yudestein, who's here. She's been here for the last four weeks. We've been, uh, Martia and I have been working together on a project, on a comparative um, case study project of uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe. Uh, Martia um, is currently a PhD candidate at uh, Tilburg University in the Netherlands. She holds a Bachelor of Science in European Studies from Maastricht University and a Master of Science from VU University Amsterdam in International Criminology. Uh, before becoming a PhD candidate, she worked for three years as a lecturer in the Master of International Crimes and Criminology at VU University Amsterdam. And she's published before on the normalization of violence in Serbia in the 1990s. And today, Marty is going to talk about, uh, speak on a topic titled Rational Dictators, How Responsive Were Pol Pot and Milosevic. Well, thank you, Stephen, for that introduction. Um, can I just thank everybody, um, Griffith University, and everybody who's come for um, allowing me to give this presentation. And I'm very much looking forward to your comments. Like Stephen said, I'm a criminologist in, in, specialized in the field of international crimes um, in terms of my background, um, but my research is inherently interdisciplinary as a lot of crim criminologists are multidisciplinary, but I think I'm stretching it a bit, and I'm really looking forward to hearing um, some of the political science, international relations background that um, some of you might bring to the table as well. So today I'm going to be presenting my overarching PhD research. I'll give some of the preliminary conclusions that I found thus far. Um, obviously, these might change as the project evolves somewhat. Um, I'm about halfway in now. So I'm looking forward not only to your questions, um, but also maybe to some of the comments or advice you have for me later on. So this is the outline of the presentation I'm going to uh, be talking about today. Um, I want to explain first of all a little bit about the theory and the aim of the research in terms of foreign policy and the role that rationality has in that. So first I want to um, go into more dictators and international crimes or atrocity crimes and their relationship, then go into um, the um, the responsibilities that this brings to the international community and how we can best incorporate those perspectives to make foreign policy more um, effective and efficient. Um, then, subsequently, I will talk a little bit about the case studies and um, what I believe can be some implications that I draw from these case studies for the implementation of the responsibility to protect. I will try to make it give as much background as I can on the different elements of uh, the projects, but if I go too fast or maybe I go too slow because something is already very well known, feel free to, to indicate this to me or, for, or to ask for more explanation on certain topics. So the relationship between uh, dictators and atrocity crimes, this really goes to the core of my research and what I and several other scholars have found, and Stephen can probably concur with this, is that the leader is um, actually crucial in bringing about um, these atrocities. Um, there have 
been several risk factors that have been identified in the field that are related to um, the emergence of atrocity crimes and international crimes. And um, one of these is dictatorship uh, more generally. But then even so, even within this overarching um, category, the individual um, authoritarian leader and what he does um, with his powers is still very important. He is the one that can transform the risk factor into actual atrocity producing situations. He is the one that can transform uh, a history of differences into actual national enemies and uh, use this to foster violence. So he's the one that in criminology we would say creates the circumstances in which ordinary people come to um, commit these extraordinary crimes. So they're extraordinary circumstances that have been created rather than, as I sometimes imagined, that these societies in which these uh, atrocities um, occur are exceptionally brutal in one way or another in and of itself. Um, so what should the international um, community do about this? Do we even feel that we have uh, a responsibility here. It, by now there has come um, a certain acceptance that there is a responsibility um, of the international community to act in these kinds of situations. The Security Council has found um, that it may threaten the international peace and security when uh, gross human rights violations are being committed. and. Um, Initially, in the 1990s, I suppose this was not as obvious in the early, um, late Cold War, early 1990s. It was through the manifest failure, I would say, especially in Rwanda and Yugoslavia that have been very influential in um, producing, first of all, outrage in the international community, how this could happen. And then it was Kofi Annan who said, well, if um, both um, not intervening to stop these crimes is unacceptable. And if the Security Council is deadlocked, and if intervening without the Security Council's authorization is unacceptable, what do, we, what do you as an international community want, uh, want to do then? We need to resolve this issue and come to terms with it. So um, Canada, the Canadian government, along with some NGOs, took up this challenge and they um, supported the creation of the original um, responsibility to protect um, report, which redefined sovereignty in such a way that it said sovereignty essentially entails the responsibility first and foremost of each state to protect their own populations against um, these, uh, these horrendous crimes. They drew it in a more broad framework of human security, um, but of widespread suffering. Um, they, this is essentially what they said, the, their own government first and foremost is responsible of preventing that. And then only if the national government fails to do so does the um, 
responsibility to protect transfer onto the international community and they um, can possibly intervene. They had different elements that they saw to this. They saw the responsibility to prevent, to react and to rebuild in situations where these crimes were committed. Um, I today will focus mainly on the responsibility to react and more specifically even to the most extreme form of a reaction that you can um, have, which is military intervention, but I'll get to that. Um, the original report had um, several threshold criteria. Like I said, it had to be widespread suffering um, that um, had to be um, manifest in the country um, and in, in order for the responsibility to be transferred onto the international community as well. And they had several criteria um, for military intervention. Later on in 2005, um, this concept was embraced by the international community, but in a much more limited format. So this human security um, idea was replaced with um, a narrow f focus on genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and ethnic cleansing, now often uh, referred to as, as atrocity crimes. Um, and in addition to that, it was stated that um, only with the authorization of the UN Security Council can um, it is the preparedness voiced, they voiced the preparedness to intervene through the UN Security Council in forceful measures when necessary. A lot of emphasis was placed on uh, the prevention as well, but the responsibility to rebuild was actually left aside um, to a large extent. In addition to that, from the, threat, from the criteria that were originally listed for military intervention, which entailed the right um, in, for, for military invention, so their right intention um, to protect the, the, the population in there, um, that it would only be used as a last resort, um, that there were proportional means used and that their prospects for success um, were, were present, they kind of got left out of this World Summit um, report when um, it would actually proved quite difficult to create a consensus beyond that such a responsibility was present. Um, so um, the only really um, criteria that has remained has been um, the, um, the last resort um, through a simple wording um, that is um, focused on um, should peaceful means be, in a, be insufficient. So it's much more limited than it was in the last, uh, in the previous report, but it was maintained in there. Um, later on, Kofi Annan, he created a three pillar system um, in, in a subsequent report that was um, noted in, in, a, in a resolution thereafter. Um, he created, divided this responsibility in the pillar of the uh, national go government to protect their own population in the pillar that 
places the responsibility of states to help other states to protect their populations, and then finally the responsibility of the uh, wider community to protect a population in a particular state if the own state is unable or unwilling to do so. So my, the aim of my research is then how do we make it more effective? Knowing that the leader is so crucial in bringing about these crimes, knowing that the international community accepted this responsibility to prevent and mitigate and stop those crimes when they are occurring, how do we go about doing this? Implementation is still at its very, um, it is still problematic in this respect. My idea coming from, uh, from, from the, the idea that the leader is so important is that should we adapt our foreign policy as an international community to the type of dictator that is responsible for the crimes? So when you talk about foreign policy measures that allow you um, to influence another state to mitigate these crimes, it depends on the responsibility, on the reaction of the other state, obviously, um, whether that will be successful. As you all very well know, I think, then you come into the domain of IR and foreign policy analysis, where the IR focus is predominantly on, nat on nations and nation states, and foreign policy analysis kind of opens this black box and looks more at the, the individual decision makers. I found that in the case of this dictatorship where the leader is so, has comparatively more influence than a democratic leader would have in, in, in their nation states, ha having to cope with um, the different institutions that prevent his unlimited power, then probably the, the, the foreign policy analysis um, framework is more useful in analyzing dictatorial regimes, even more so than it would be in, in, in democracies. So where international relations has always assumed kind of this idea of rationality as being this one objective rationality that determines um, the outcome, foreign policy analysis said, well, if you look at the actual decision maker, this is not necessarily all that useful because people coming from a, a social psychology perspective mainly, um, these, these scholars have argued, people just merely don't have the skill set to make um, well-calculated rational decisions. Nevertheless, they mainly, um, even though they, they significantly nuanced the debate on rationality within the field, I think, they still mainly talked about a particular type of rationality and the extent to which this rationality could be attained, which is, I think, especially when you're talking about leaders responsible for these gross, atrocious human rights violations becomes very problematic. So I wanted to nuance this type of rationality predominantly because it doesn't allow a rightful place for the role ideology place says in sometimes in the, in the crimes that are committed. Oftentimes these crimes are even couched in ideological terms, 
but other times as well, the leader standing at the head of this nation will believe his own ideology that he professes and will try to achieve utopia in that. I think the framework that was developed by Max Weber in this respect is very um, useful to analyze these types of rationality. He basically said you can have two types of rationality, two different versions. And then within that, you can, of course, have still degrees to how much an actual person would approach these types of rationality. So the instrumental rationality would be what people generally think of when you talk about um, rationality. This is what has mainly been dealt with in um, the literature so far. It, it starts from a point where, it is, where the person would try to achieve individual ends by weighing costs and benefits, and obviously if uh, the benefits outweigh the costs, he would. If the costs out, outweigh the benefits, he wouldn't. He would try to the best of his ability. Max Weber is also very explicit about this, that he acknowledges that people will have limitations in doing so, considers the consequences of his own actions, and anticipates the reactions of others. So it tries to get a complete picture of the most um, useful option for that person at the time. And it can also weigh different goals against each other. So if you would have money on the one hand and power on the other, you might be able to, to use those interchangeably to some extent. But then he also said that there's another type of rationality, a value rationality, which does not entail a goal that you can use to, that can be interchanged with one another. It's uh, a sacred goal. It usually stems from, well, he's talking about everything from beauty to religion to honor. These are not goals that you can weigh or measure like you would, for instance, money as the quintessential example. So the overarching goal, the end goal, there's really no compromising in uh, the attainment of that. And the person that would strive to meet those goals um, would do so independent of the chances of success because even working towards attaining that goal would have meaning and it would disregard then costs or consequences both to himself and others along the way. And of course these are these are ideal types. Max Weber goes into what an ideal type is quite extensively, but it's more of an analytical tool than an actual construct that you would have to find imperfection in um, reality. It's a lens through which to analyze reality. So coming to my case study, I want to look at I wanted to look at two situations in which leaders that had different types of rationality were in a, in, in a relatively similar um, situation. And, and look at how this then impacted or did it impact their decision. As I will explain later and go more deeply into, um, Milosevic, of course, at one point faced intervention from NATO when he was perpetrating atrocities in Kosovo and Pol Pot was threatened by the end of his reign um, by Vietnam um, when he was perpetrating especially atrocities 
um, next to the border. Now, I'm not don't want to go too deep into whether these were examples of humanitarian intervention because I'm really focusing on the perspective of um, the leader. Both, both instances I think are very questionable as uh, humanitarian intervention per se and I'm not claiming that they would match the R2P framework as it is today, especially in the case of Vietnam, but also to a certain extent in the case of NATO, humanitarian in, um, motivations don't seem to underlie um, the intervention per se. What is important is that both leaders faced an army that was much stronger than their armies were, and that they were offered peace deals that initially they both declined. But let me, before I get in more deeply into that, let me first give a little bit of the background into the conflicts, um, as I'm not entirely sure whether everybody is familiar with it. Where I start um, talking about the history of Yugoslavia and the unraveling of Yugoslavia more in particular, it's contentious in itself, I would say. If you ask different ethnic, ethnic groups um, in, in Yugoslavia, especially during the war, they probably would have started at different points in time in explaining its history. I'm going to start um, with the death of, death of Tito, because before that, at least any ethnic tensions that were there um, were manageable and were managed. Um, he was able, Tito was able to um, balance these ethnic tensions. He gave autonomy to two regions, Vojvodina and Kosovo, um, at a time. But when he died in, in 1980, that new generation of leaders rose and they used the rising tensions between different ethnic groups start stemming partly as well from economic um, discomforts that uh, made the economic standards of living um, quite disparate in different regions as well. And they capitalized on them. They fomented that hatred further and they used it. And especially Milosevic, I think, was quite adept at that. He was quite good at that. His propaganda um, machine really created a national enemy out of some of the other groups. And while he was portraying to defend um, the unity of Yugoslavia by fighting other breakaway republics, he was actually underlying the breakup. He was actually feeding into the war, and the war significantly increased his power. Cambodia is a slightly different story. The after after a, a, a war on April 1975, um, the Khmer Rouge um, and Pol Pot, um, as, as its leader, took power and conquered Phnom Penh in, 19, um, in 1975, and then proceeded to expel people from the cities. He would differentiate between new people who he thought of as people that were already living in the rural areas during the war that he was a part of, and between, sorry, between old people who were, were already living in the, uh, the rural areas and the new people who were living in the urban areas. And he dispersed the new people into the rural areas where many had to 
work on the very hard living conditions and a tremendous amount of people died, not only from starvation, but also because of uh, executions that were um, done by the regime. He targeted particularly ethnic minorities, um, the Vietnam, uh, the Vietnamese that were living in there, the Muslim Chams, but also um, his own people um, suffered extensive loss. It has been estimated that up to about 1.7 million people died during this horrendous reign of power. So who are these people and what kind of rationality underlay the, the choices that they made? Um, in order to analyze this, I will look at um, the biographical information of each of the leaders. Milosevic was born in 1941. He was raised by his mom who believed that he would one day be this fantastic communist apparatchik and he, she pushed him to um, perform well. He would um, have a determination to do well in school. He would be absolutely devoted to his personal ambitions, um, one of his classmates would, want, would say back at the time, so, um, or in hindsight. And then later on during his school years, he would meet his wife-to-be, Mira Markovic. They were both teenagers and they became pretty much uh, inseparable from that time on. And then she, the account goes, pushed him quite a bit as well. There's a story where she walks by this window shop and there's a picture of Tito hanging in there and she tells a friend, um, this is where my slowbo will be one day. Um, and she denied it later on, but it's been at least a quite a, a, it's a story that characterizes at least how she was perceived at the time. During his law studies later on, he didn't have um, many close friends except one, Ivan Stambulic, and he was ambitious as well during his years. He would um, see in Stambulic a role model, and when Stambulic went into office, this created a lot of, op this opened a lot of doors for Milosevic as well. In 1984, Milosevic had taken over the position of Stambulic as the um, at, at a, as the head of the Belgrade Party organization, and um, Milosevic at that time shifted a bit back and forth into the ori political orientations that he adhered to. At one moment, he wasn't uh, more of an a, a progressive liberal socialist, and at other times, he turned to be more um, orthodox, which was generally seen as more populist maneuvering than um, that it would be a, a genuine change of heart. He seemed to go back and forth quite a bit. When, when Stambulic became the president of Serbia, Milosevic became the Republican Party boss, and they had a few fallouts along the way, and in 1987, um, Milosevic basically flipped a switch at the eighth session of the Serbian Communist Party uh, meeting by withdrawing his support from Stambulic and um, arguing that the latter was acting against the best interests of the party, causing Stambulic to lose tremendous support. Um, consequently, 
Milosevic was able um, to go through the ranks um, of the uh, Serbian politics and eventually end up at its head, he would not he would not discover really the power of nationalism until he gave this speech at Kosovo where he was actually sent in order to quell the unrest that was there at the time. But he saw um, an Albanian police officer uh, hitting uh, a Serbian uh, national and he, rather than calming the situation, called out, nobody should ever beat you again to the Serbian people. This was subsequently aired throughout Serbia everywhere um, repeatedly and it garnered a lot of support for Milosevic. He was he went on to replace certain key positions with his followers and he became more and more was able to, to take control over the media and um, politics in general in that area. During his rule Milosevic thrived on the sense of insecurity that was pervasive in uh, Serbia and the wars that that separated Yugoslavia eventually. Labor wrote at one point, the equation was simple enough. War ensued, ensured political power, political power demanded war. Thus, Milosevic would ensure that war would be present. Some, like Gilas, have argued that maybe Milosevic was truly committed to his idea of a greater Serbia that um, some of the Bosnian um, Serbian nationalists also professed. But there, there were several US officials and um, what happened throughout the war also showed that he had been disingenuous and was willing to betray his fellow Serbian um, nationalist on several occasions. He didn't do anything to help them when the Croats swept through the Krajina region, um, doing a lot of damage there. At one point, he humiliated them during the Dayton Accords. So um, it was thought of by a lot of diplomats as well that all Milosevic cared about was Milosevic, and it was as simple as that, which actually suited them quite a lot because he had, Milosevic had tremendous influence over the Bosnian Serbs, and you could talk to him. This leads me to conclude that Milosevic used ideology for personal gain, and his predominant goal wasn't um, a greater Ser Serbian uh, region, but um, it was power, and he was actually quite a calculating pragmatist. Pol Pot then, um, he was born as Salath Sar, and during quite a long time in his school going years, he wasn't at all that much interested in politics. This only came when he started to study in Paris, um, and he, well, it's it's been described, it was in 1948 when he went there that he got there when the French communist movement reached the zenith of his of success. So it was also quite a popular thing to do in order to become a communist at this time. So initially, I would say that his ideology seemed to have found him more than he found the, the communist ideology. And it wasn't necessarily from the heart, maybe initially. But he became devoted to 
um, communism through, through those years. He wasn't very interested in, in, in school. He lost his scholarship because he never made an exam, but he was engaged a lot in discussions on politics and communism. He didn't read Marx. It was a bit too complicated maybe for him, but he saw communism as a way of good to triumph over evil. And the communist ideology became kind of enmeshed with uh, a nationalist sentiment as well. It became um, fused into this utopia that he then set, um, set out to create. He would profess that he would be willing to dedicate and die for, um, for, 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 the, for this idea. His rise to power um, happened when Tsar um, returned home in 1953 to aid the revolution from there. And he spent several times in, in, in quite horrendous conditions, suffering from malaria, having to walk days on end in order to fight this guerrilla war. At this time, he doesn't seem to be vehemently anti-Vietnamese, as he would become in, in later years. He actually seemed to be a bit pragmatic, because he cooperated with um, Vietnamese forces in those early years. But um, it, while he was isolated in this um, revolutionary zeal with the people around him, he didn't counter a lot of people that um, that had different voices and he became more and more dedicated to the cause, to the ideology that they had together and a lot of the um, people he had met in Paris would stay in this clique for um, a, approximately f 40 years. So in the early 1970s the tide was turning. Up until that time, the outlook for success seemed pretty bleak, actually. There was not, it didn't seem that there was be a lot, would be a lot of progress. Um, but the tide was turning in 1970s, and in the regions that were under, under their control, um, the farms were collectivized, um, private properties uh, was abolished, and slowly but surely they started to implement their ideology. During his rule, um, he didn't waste any time, so he implemented the ideology, the utopia. He tried to create that straight from the um, very beginning. He made ensured that the only loyalty people would have at a time would be to um, the organization, to the revolution, and tried to cut the uh, ties between communities, between people, and between families even. It started to have um, significant racial components as well with minorities being, being targeted. Overall, I think um, it's possible to argue that Pol Pot had this um, actual commitment to uh, to, to the ideology. He had this fatalistic world image where he felt that he should rebuild through his revolutionary um, ways the Cambodian society back to the glorious days that it once had um, in the times of Angkor Wat and free it from a repeated Vietnamese domination. That was his 
um, predominant fear that they would be um, dominated once more, once again, by the Vietnamese. And it, it went along with a, with a shocking disregard for any com consequences that this might um, entail for the population. So coming back to um, our overarching case study, which in both regimes um, happened at the end of their rule, like I said, they were both threatened to be invaded by a much stronger army, both were offered peace deals, and then both responded very differently. Although uh, Milosevic too initially refused to settle um, when he was offered the chance to do so, eventually, as I will explain, when domestic politics were such to allow for that compromise, and he figured it would allow him an opportunity to re remain power. Milosevic eventually did settle, and Pol Pot decided to fight until the bitter end, and um, he was deposed from power. Kosovo um, was a region in, in, in Serbia, and to what extent it still is a part of Serbia is a controversial question that I won't get into, but it certainly was at the time, and they had been fighting for, for, for independence and vying for independence along with some of the other republics, but for a long time Ibrahim Rugova had taken the lead and he had taken on a very uh, pacifist stance there. The uh, Dayton Accords, which settled the other conflicts in former Yugoslavia, were a huge disappointment for those fighting for independence at Kosovo because they were basically um, left out of it and neglected. And the international community had threatened Milosevic repeatedly to um, seize um, the atrocities that were committed against Albanians there at a point when they decided to take up arms in order to fight for their their independence. So the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, at one point became much stronger. Ibrahim Rugova's pacifist struggle seemed to be losing out, and um, Milosevic fought back harshly. But because the international community really didn't want to jeopardize the Dayton Accords and wanted to appease everything so that um, it wouldn't escalate again. Broken promises and threats characterized for a long time the, the interventionist policies of the, uh, of the international community. Um, eventually, Milosevic gets invited at Rambouillet when the international community impose, imposes this ultimatum on him. They say, you have to come to some sort of an agreement with us um, or we will act forcefully as a reprisal. And although Milosevic seems to have known that it would actually lead to some bombardments, he miscalculates and he thinks it will be swift and brief and that NATO won't be committed enough to sustain an, an air force, which is, was actually reasonable because NATO wasn't preparing for an all-out war and they never wanted it to um, last this long. In addition, they were telling him that there would never be any boots on the ground. Now, what Milosevic wanted to do was give it this extra push and prove that 
actually this intervention, this bombing of Serbia proper, was um, counterproductive. So he started to commit full-out atrocities truly when the bombing had started. What he didn't expect is that this actually um, caused NATO's determination to harden and public support in a lot of the, the, the countries of which NATO was composed garnered some support because um, people saw the, the, the extent of the atrocities and um, felt it needed to be stopped. In the end of the 1970s um, in, in, in Vietnam at the border between Vietnam and, um, and, and in Cambodia, some what of a similar thing happens where Pol Pot commits atrocious crimes to um, the people live, living there and different disputes uh, about a number of issues um, lead to skirmishes um, back and forth. Wars were getting more serious and more um, quiet throughout several years. Um, and at, in 1978, 1979, it becomes more and more extensive. And Vietnam offered peace um, and engaged in peace negotiations on several occasions, but um, Pol Pot never um, accepted any of them. Um, at one point, he even um, just disengaged diplomatic relations altogether. For, for Pol Pot, he saw this as a sacred war. He saw the alternative of either losing or compromising to be as great as, um, as anything else that could happen. So he um, doesn't relent and he is eventually deposed by the Vietnamese army. Milosevic, in contrast, when the bombings of NATO get too severe, you see a tide turning in um, Serbia. Some of his cronies and his immediate surroundings, they start to feel the burden as well of the, the intervention. And he notices that he will probably be able to reach consensus with NATO and still remain power. Um, Pol Pot ha has to flee to the uh, border area with Thailand where he engaged in a prolonged struggle trying to get back into power, trying to continue um, what he started for years to come. What this led me to conclude, um, relying back on the rationalities that have been developed by Max Weber is that ideological leaders um, on the basis of this case studies at least indeed appear to be uh, more difficult to influence than non-ideological leaders and that ideological genocides will be more difficult um, to prevent or stop mainly because the instrumental rational leader will take the consequences of his actions into account, will anticipate what the other party will do, whereas uh, a non-ideological or an ideological leader will just disregard him completely, um, has a willingness of self-sacrifice, has a willingness to go against the preferences of his uh, individual person um, in order to attain the overarching goal. Now, um, what should this mean for foreign policy, if it should mean anything at all? Um, as I said before, the one uh, remaining element 
um, as uh, criteria for mil military intervention is this should peaceful means be inadequate um, aspect that considering the horrendous suffering that's also inflicted upon a population by military intervention with the best intentions is the, the one remaining consensus that is left. You, you shouldn't venture into that lightly. Um, but what it means when peaceful means um, are inadequate is not necessarily a question that's related to international law. It's an empirical question. And among the many factors that determine this question, I think one piece of the puzzle is in a dictatorial regime, at least, the leader um, that's in power and the motivation with which he um, carries out these um, atrocities. So the fulfillment of the last resort conditions, in my mind, to some extent, will be dependent on the type of dictator and the type of rationality um, that characterizes his behavior. Instrumental rational leaders, although they are more responsive, are nevertheless still likely to miscalculate, as I think the um, work in foreign policy analysis generally also has established, that it's still subject to a lot of the limitations just from the pure fact that a human is doing the calculating. And the international community should therefore strive to get a message across that is as clear and unambiguous as possible in that given um, political environment. Um, so my conclusion overall is that, yes, I think we should take um, the type of dictator into account and that the type of dictator is closely um, determined by the type of rationality which um, guides his behavior overall. And knowing that what will probably not work may save time and lives, and that it's perhaps not the best idea to put pressure through sanctions or um, diplomacy on a highly ideological leader and expect it to work. I'm not saying you shouldn't put pressure on him, and I'm not saying you shouldn't shame him in any diplomatic arena, but I'm saying maybe you shouldn't rely on that um, to stop whatever is occurring, that um, whatever atrocity is he is perpetrating. So those are my preliminary findings, and I am looking very much forward to hearing any ideas, comments, or advice that you may have. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.